Good morning, everyone. My name is Aya Tateishi. Um, I'm an LCSW and a supervisor at Pacific Asian Counseling Services. Um, so this is the second training from our UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership AAPI training series. My presentation today is on the outreach and engagement phases of API mental health treatment. So before we get started, um, I wanted to share a little bit about my background to get into why I was interested in this topic. Um, my academic back background is on psychology and clinical social work. Um, just like any other diligent API students, I worked hard to transfer from El Camino College to UCI, took a year long break and pursued my master's at USC in social work. So during college, uh, I interned at UCI Counseling Center as a peer counselor, providing academic and life coaching services to my fellow UCI students. During my grad school, I interned for LAUSD at an elementary school in Wilmington on my first year and also at a county contracted mental health agency, Community Family Guidance Center um, in Cerritos for my second year internship. Since grad school, I have been working at my current job at Pacific Asian Counseling Services from 2015 to now. I am a Japanese immigrant. I came to this country at age five. Um, I've struggled a lot being new to the culture and the language, trying to adapt to the new American ways while not getting much support from my parents as they were extremely busy you know, with work and you know, taking care of us, giving us a better life. Um, after high school, due to personal reasons, I joined the Navy uh, and temporarily parted ways with my family, which my family was not really happy with my decision. Uh, both my parents had a traumatic childhood and that was passed down to me and my sisters. So a lot of like intergenerational trauma. I won't get into the details of my personal traumas that would take at least five more training sessions. <laughs> but let me just say that my ACE score, as you, you guys might be familiar with, is a nine out of 10. Given the trauma that I've experienced, I was never exposed to or been offered any sort of mental health services or help while growing up. The closest help I've gotten was from a middle school guidance counselor, Dr. Dave, he was a great man. Because of him, I wanted to work in community mental health since I was 16 years old. So today, why this topic? Um, the short answer is my upbringing, my trauma, my academic and work experiences have all brought me here today. And this is why I am so passionate about bringing awareness to how challenging it is for API communities to seek mental health services. So I hope by sharing about my knowledge, my expertise, uh, my experiences, that I can increase our outreach efforts to better serve this population. Next, I would like to share a short video clip to better understand our training objectives. Hi everyone, my name is Tim Shu, and I'm a fourth year computer science major at Georgia Tech. I'm fresh off an initiative from Silicon Valley, come from a good socioeconomic background. I'm perfectly physically healthy, have a stable family life, and have strong and meaningful friendships. Yet, on August 25th, I was found on the floor, 30 minutes away from dying from overdosing on over 100 prescription painkillers from trying to kill myself. There was nothing wrong with my life on paper. If anything, I had everything to lose. I love my family so much. 
I wanted to be able to make my brother's bachelor party, wedding, and to be an uncle. I love my friends so much. I wanted to be able to continue growing up with them, to see who they'd end up with, where they'd be, and see all the amazing things that they would accomplish. I wanted to see where I could go and my dream of making a positive impact on the lives of others, even though at the time, I didn't know how. I was willing to forgo all that, give up on everything I loved in the entire world, cared about, or dreamed of, because of something that many people don't believe exists. Mental illness. If you break your arm, a doctor can use an x-ray to diagnose exactly where in your arm a fracture or break in your bone occurs, and issue a treatment plan with a cast or a splint to move everything back into place. However, there's no x-ray for mental illness. This can take weeks or months to see the full picture, as certain symptoms can overlap. Unfortunately for me, the Asian cultural mentality I was raised in was one in which mental health did not exist. I first realized that I wasn't just like everybody else in my freshman year of high school. I'd been an academically inclined, involved, and social student. My first fall semester had went completely fine. That following spring, I was hit by my first ever bout of depression. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't eat. All I could do was want to lay in my room alone. It got so bad to the point that I couldn't even remember what clothes to put on. That depressive episode would be followed by an episode of mania, which is basically characterized by racing thoughts, fast speech, delusions, and inability to sleep. Like clockwork, my mood would cycle on a bi-weekly basis between depression and mania, much to the observation of my parents. While I was extremely good at hiding how unwell I was with my words to others, I was unable to hide how unwell I was with my actions. My band director, who had been teaching kids for over 30 years, noticed that something was erratic with the behavior. He said to my mother, Miss Shu, while your child is extremely bright, there's definitely something wrong. You need to see a doctor. You need to see a doctor. Well, my mother smiled and said, yes, yes. In reality, I never received any help from my family. When I got so sad to the point that I couldn't get out of bed, my dad would just tell me to take a nap and then everything would get better. When I got so sad to the point that I couldn't eat, my mom would tell me to just cheer up and to not waste food. While they both loved and cared for me, the Asian cultural mindset that they were raised in was one in which mental health did not exist. As a result, though misguided, they handled my situation the only way they knew how. Like clockwork, my mood cycled on a bi-weekly basis between depression and mania, much to the observation of my parents. Three months later, I was at my breaking point. After going for over 72 hours without sleeping, I broke down, crying hysterically in front of my teachers and classmates. My desperate cries for help in private had proved futile. So the only option I saw left was to rely on the sympathy of the public. And it worked. I was taken to a hospital, able to see a doctor, get medication, and finally put a name to the illness that had been destroying my life.
bipolar disorder? So, um, yeah, that video really kind of resonated with me, um, you know, because I deal with um, a lot of anxiety in my life. And, um, you know, when I was little growing up, I couldn't really put a name to that. And I didn't know what that was. But, you know, being in mental health, that I'm learning so much about, you know, anxiety and other symptoms and, you know, just seeing meeting our other clients, too. So today, um, we're going to cover these learning objectives. So um, I'm going to list them out. Why are mental health services underutilized in the AAPI community? Uh, what are some of the AAPI community's barriers and stigmas in seeking mental health treatment? How can we help AAPI individuals to increase motivation and decrease barriers to seek services? Uh, and finally, how does outreach and engagement look like for AAPI consumers of different age groups? Where do we start? So, um, you know, research shows that the rate of mental health service utilization by U.S. born American uh, Asian, Asian American individuals was almost twice that of immigrant Asian Americans. Um, there's a higher chance of U.S. born Asian Americans to self-refer themselves to these services. Um, some of the factors associated with this are English language proficiency and access to healthcare, meaning um, these individuals were more likely to seek services if they were um, able to better communicate their mental health needs or concerns, or if they were referred to a mental health provider by their primary care physician. Uh, in some cases, family or friends become the primary referring source for individuals who suffer from mental illness, but this is rare because API families choose to keep quiet about their family members' mental health issues, hence the underutilization. Um, studies also show that schools and universities are also helpful platform in linking API individuals to mental health services because one of the many reasons to um, for underutilization is that these individuals tend to have low perceived severity of their daily life stressors and um, lower help seeking intentions. Um, and I'll get into more details about that later. Uh, schools and universities offer education and resources on counseling and mental health. Um, API individuals are also referred to mental health services by church leaders and members if they find that holistic approach is not um, improving their mental health symptoms. So yeah, um, you know, these are, you know, we get referrals from, you know, different places at our agency. Um, we get ours from schools, DMH, um, you know, self-referred family and, you know, friends, relatives. So, you know, I, I kind of was interested in finding out on, you know, I know you guys are, many of you guys are from a mental health provider and I wanna see if you guys, you know, where you guys get your referrals from. Well, thanks for sharing the responses. So primary care physicians, a lot of the family and relatives, school self-referred and others, okay. Yeah, we're getting a lot of folks in the chat saying hospitals, jail, boarding care facilities, step mm -hmm. down, jail systems, other mental health providers who do not have language capacity, um, other housing residential coordinators and hospitals, jails, other facilities as well. Yeah, I think um, this training was uh, sent out to a lot of um, FSP providers, so. I think um, a lot of our responses kind of look similar. Okay, so I'm gonna share my next video. The next video clip will introduce the topic of barriers and stigmas for API communities to seek services.
it sort of feels like you're on a roller coaster in the middle of a hurricane. I was like super suicidal all the time, every day. There was a lot of fear about disappointing myself. Um, there was a lot of fear about, you know, disappointing my parents. And the, the big thing that I was really stressed about was that I was going to be clinically diagnosed with anxiety or something like that. It's just another thing I have to worry about. My family at first, um, they were sort of in disbelief. It was difficult for them to fathom why I would have a mental illness if all these other things in my life were good. They were really, really angry with me and I ended up facing a lot of consequences. And what I didn't expect was him to say, oh yeah, your mom went to therapy when she was in Japan. And I was like, what? You never, you never told me this. India in general is a very spiritual country. And so I remember they told me that, you know, if I prayed um, that that would help and that things would get better. Um, and obviously it didn't. She's just not very understanding. Um, and I don't think it's always that she doesn't want to be or doesn't try to be, but just that she like almost physically does not know how. And I think in Asian culture, um, being mentally strong and being able to overcome and being able to do all of all of this stuff and not have any problems in life, that's, um, that's just a, a major mindset that I think needs to be broken. My family's not open about talking about mental health and mental illness because it's not like something, it's not like a conversation starter at the dinner table. Hey mom, I'm depressed. I don't even think uh, my stepdad's parents who are pretty close to them or us know I've ever been in the hospital or know that I have had a diagnosis of any kind. Just in reflection on like my mom and her family, um, I think it was just very, very hard for her to be willing to ask for help. Most people came to this country without a lot and so if you were strong enough to do that then you should be grateful and if you're grateful then how could you be depressed or have problems? There's a lot of shame around what was going on with me and what I was doing to the image of our family and what I was doing to her and to my brother and to just, you know, all of that. But the fact that my dad was like, oh yeah, your mom went to therapy, like whatever. I was like, oh, okay. It's like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I am pretty vocal about my mental um, health issues because other people who are vocal about theirs helped me. I want to make it clear that when I say, who cares, it's not anything special. It's because I want it to be normal. I would just want them to know that your child is not ungrateful to you and you did not do anything wrong as a parent. It's not your fault and it's not their fault, it's just a disease. You know, my mom will never understand, but if she could just like accept this is something that is gonna go on with me and it's not just something I'm doing to her or to myself. Also just be there for them because often your family can be your best support. I think that therapy can be for everyone. I, w I want it to be normal in, in the way that, you know, if it would be like 
going to see a dentist. Now we're going to kind of dive deep into the barriers, stigmas, and shame um, in API communities seeking services. So there's a lot of, um, you know, historical, uh, I guess, like, framework, you know, historically, API communities have endured racism and discrimination in this country. Therefore, in their subconscious efforts to not stand out, they have become more and more private, keeping to themselves without asking for any help. And that kind of became the cultural norm. Um, stoicism was one of the reasons um, API individuals seeing enduring harshness without complaining as a virtue. So embracing the stoicism without, you know, complaining makes it very difficult when a family member is suffering and needs mental health services. And the whole model minority myth, um, the label, even though it's a uh, myth, you know, this whole label of model minority in this country makes them embrace that they are problem free and are doing extremely well and that they don't have any issues. Um, Language is another barrier in seeking services for many of our API immigrants. Um, awareness, again, due to the historical nature of stoicism and their culture, they lack awareness of any mental health related concerns. Um, appropriate services, um, so that basically says traditional talk therapy model lacks a culturally sensitive approach and this appropriate API language capacities. Um, religion and spirituality. API individuals tend to learn more on religious and spiritual support than seeking traditional mental health services. So more on barriers and stigmas, immigration status. Um, Asian immigrants tend to keep to themselves due to less exposure and access to mental health resources. Um, cultural stigmas uh, of seeking or seeking services or even admitting that there's something wrong. Um, API community strongly disapproves of burdening others with their problems. Uh, saving faces uh, due to the beliefs that seek, uh, speaking to people outside of the family about mental health problems will make the family look bad. There's a strong pressure to act like everything is okay when it's really not. Dismissive nature. Um, API parents often dismiss their children's emotional concerns without taking the time to really understand the nature of the problems. Some parents may say things like, you have everything you need. You know, we give you everything. You are physically healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, internalization, uh, sorry, I skipped one. Perceived severity and benefit. So perceived severity and benefit, going back to this, uh, because API individuals grew up in having their emotional concerns dismissed, they become more dismissive to themselves. And meaning when they go through stressful life events, their perceived severity is very low. Therefore, their perceived benefit of seeking services and the outcome of services become you know, pretty much non-existent. They tend to power through their life, keeping busy with work and school or whatever they're doing without asking for any help. So internalization of problems. Because AAPI school-age children tend to internalize their mental health problems, these problems often go undetected by friends, teachers, and other school staff. Uh, this goes the same for adults at workplace or any other social settings. Now we're going to do a little case study. So I'm gonna, um, so can I get a volunteer to read these three paragraphs? Uh, Lily is a 13 year old Korean American female who was born in South Korea. 
Lily and her parents came to this country six months ago, and Lily is having a difficult time adjusting to her new environment, uh, both with school and making friends. When Lily gets home from school each day, she feels alone and cries, but she buries her feelings by doing extra homework and getting straight A's. When her parents come home from work, Lily puts on a smile and eats dinner with them. Her parents would ask her how her school is going, but Lily just smiles and replies, it's okay. One day at school, Lily sees a flyer for school counseling services. Lily wants to talk to someone, but she does not think that she can communicate well enough in English to the school, um, there, oh, there you go, <laughs> uh, to the school therapist. She is also afraid to make her parents look bad by admitting that she is depressed. Thank you for reading that. So now um, we're going to do some reflective questions. So which three barriers or stigmas are hindering Lily's decision to seek mental health services at her school? So let's um, go through the first question first. Any, any thoughts, any comments? Please feel free to. A language barrier. Language barrier. Mm -hmm. Any other stigmas or barriers? Yeah, shame. And then, you know, the parents are very dismissive, you know. Um, Lily is very good at hiding her um, problems. So parents kind of just see that as like, mm, she's okay. You know, she's smiling at dinner. Everything's, everything's fine at school. Yeah. Any other comments, thoughts? Was guilt said as a stigma? Mm-hmm. Yeah guilt of um, basically kind of burdening other people, um, you know, embarrassing her parents by talking about any issues at home. Um, so second question, if you were her classmate or her teacher who noticed her depressive symptoms, how would you approach her and how would you help her? So if you were the classmate or teacher, how would you, you know, help her if you noticed her depressive symptoms at school? Okay, so let's move on to the next question. If you were Lily's, Lily's school therapist, how would you tailor your outreach efforts and treatment plan? Maybe like getting a translator involved um, um, from an external agency. Uh, what else can we do? Christina, do you mind if you um, pop, you know, uh, check if there's any chat responses? Yeah, a few folks said, um in terms of an approach, um, mm -hmm. someone can say they notice that you're there, that she's down, not herself. Does she want to talk about it? And someone also mentioned um, to take a very gentle approach as well. Thank you for that. Um, I I use that as um, my vignette because it, it is so common for a lot of our API, you know, individuals to basically you know, kind of ignore the issues and just keep busy, like, you know, keep doing work, keep, you know, keep doing errands, keep taking care of other people's needs instead of your own needs. So that's one of the reasons why I actually included that in my case study. We have some folks offering that uh, maybe asking what some of our interests were in Korea and start discussing that to build rapport, mm -hmm. uh, possibly reaching out to family also. And then also to start normalizing her symptoms and helping her understand how her treatment could support her and provide motivation for treatment. 
Great, thank you. We do have someone else saying to reach out to other um, Asian or Asian American um, TX, I'm not sure what that means, to discuss, a therapist, thank you, <laughs> to discuss how culture may be a barrier to get a better understanding. Yeah. So now we're moving on to increasing motivation and overcoming barriers. So first thing uh, we wanna focus on is raising awareness. Uh, it is crucial for us to raise awareness in the API communities that taking care of our mental health is really important and that there are resources out there that can help. Um, a lot of people don't know that there's help out there. So kind of bringing that to the attention and awareness. Um, linguistically and culturally sensitive services. So our services should you know, offer culturally sensitive approaches and hire mental health professionals who are able to speak their API languages. Um, referrals from primary care physicians. So doctors are often seen as trustworthy and credible people in the API communities. So therefore, you know, recommendations made by these doctors are more well received by them. Um, Referrals from school and colleges. So similarly to the doctors, teachers have a great impact on kids' academics. Therefore, reframing mental health support as helping your kids academically perform better in school would encourage the parents to actually seek help for their kids. Um, increasing research and training. So this would educate us providers on how to engage our API communities by doing more research, uh, by you know attending workshops, seminars, um, Use of self-disclosure. Um, oftentimes when a mental health professional uses self-disclosure and treatment, it makes it easier for the API client to share about their hardships and concerns. So um, I wanna give an example from one of my former clients in CalWORKS when I was doing CalWORKS program. Um, this uh, Japanese female, you know, she was an older lady. She requested a Japanese therapist. You know, luckily we had a Japanese staff myself and then I started working with her. But um, I noticed in the beginning of the treatment, she became very, you know, resistant and she didn't really share a lot. And um, she would often say things like, you know, you're probably gonna judge me, but, you know, and then she'll share something or you're probably gonna think this is embarrassing, but, so, um, you know, she, there was a lot of shame, you know, I think she, as a Japanese female to another Japanese female, she was very kind of, um, I guess, like reserved on sharing a lot about her concerns and about her housing situation and all that and her job situation. So um, when I started kind of self-disclosing about, you know, some of my past struggles or, you know, like, for example, like, you know, how, what my mom went through, you know, as an immigrant and, you know, similar housing issues. Um, she actually started opening up to me. So that was actually really cool. You know, we, you know, we built a rapport that way. And then she was, you know, becoming much more open to our treatment. So more on increasing motivation and overcoming barriers. So psychological and physical distance from family. So this means, um, you know, being away from home life sometimes where mental health is not acknowledged can make it easier to help uh, or to seek help. So, for example, college students leaving home for the first time to live at dorms, uh, social environment. 
uh, being surrounded by people who are more motivated for treatment would increase the likelihood of API individuals seeking help. So for example, college students surrounded by campus resources and peers who are linked to their own therapists would actually talk about like, you know, their therapy experiences to these individuals. And, you know, these individuals would actually think like, oh, like, my friends have a therapist and it's normal and they normalize it. So maybe I'll go get some help at school too. And there's a lot of resources out there on college campuses. Um, so increasing tolerance to stigma, teaching our AAPI communities how to increase tolerance to shame and stigma related to help seeking. So, you know, again, teaching them that this is normal. Um, it's not a shameful thing. So decreasing all that stigma. Uh, improving communication between parents and child. So we can help our child clients communicate their mental health concerns to their parents in a non-blaming way and psychoeducate the parents on the importance of our services. So for example, I had a client that um, she was so scared to talk about her depression to her mom because she knew that her mom would get mad at her. So, um, and then a lot of the depression, you know, depressive symptoms actually stem from her, you know, I guess, negative interaction with her mother. So um, when she wanted to share that story with her mom, she asked me in treatment, she was like, how do I talk to my mom without sounding like I'm accusing her sounding like everything is her fault, because I had this conversation before and she blew up on me. So just, you know, using that psychoeducation and treatment, you know, how to talk to your parent, you know, without sounding blaming. Um, so, and then also psychoeducating the parents on how important our services are to these kids, you know, I think that would open up their eyes more to their child's needs. Um, dual culture service providers, therapists and other mental health professionals who are immigrants may be able to better relate to their clients due to their own identity of dual culture. So I'm an immigrant, you know, came here when I was five years old. Um, I do have my like Japanese cultural side, but I'm also very, um, I guess, well-versed in the American ways too. So knowing and being familiar with both sides, I think I'm able to better understand, you know, like let's say adolescents, you know, that are kind of similar to my situation where they came when they were little and then they, they could speak English, but their parents are having a lot of difficulty understanding, you know, the way they're adapting to this American culture. Um, so now we're gonna get into outreach and engagement portion. So, um, First step, you know, in every research that I've um, done, like I've read so many articles researching this topic and a lot of the articles had a similar theme to it, which is, you know, first step is psychoeducation. Um, education on symptoms and the problem. So oftentimes API individuals are not aware of their symptoms and how these symptoms are negatively impairing their daily life functioning. So it is very important to teach them in a culturally sensitive manner. So, you know, uh, conducting outreach, you know, sessions at a community and community events and festivals. So psychoeducation can be effective in API community events and different festivals. You know, you know, a lot of our clients in our different program called Inc, which is a, you know, a program specifically for our Cambodian clients. They do, you know, blessing ceremonies and that's part of the, you know, I guess, platform that they use to teach coping skills and, you know, mental health psychoeducation. So that's something that we have at our agency. Um, 
active engagement of parents and families. So psychoeducating the parents leads to more acceptance of mental health illness within the families. So making it easier for the individual to seek help. Um, educating on coping skills. So these individuals are used to powering through their day-to-day -day life, keeping busy until they are literally overwhelmed and they can, you know, they kind of hit a mental breakdown. So uh, teaching various coping skills so their stressors can open their eyes to different self-care methods. So instead of powering through, you know, maybe stopping and, you know, meditating or, you know, doing some exercise or yoga or, you know, going out on a hike or, you know, spending time with friends and venting to friends. Um, respect for cultural norms and values. This is a huge thing in AAPI community because if we just push services on them without showing any respect for their cultural values, they will just shut down even more. Um, so I actually conducted a little, you know, four question survey uh, within my agency and I asked all the therapists, you know, and um, I had some responses, but I'm sharing seven of them. I'm not gonna go through, you know, every single one. You guys could just kind of maybe read it on the slides that you get later. But um, so these questions are, you know, did your clients speak uh, your API language? If not, was it was translator utilized? whether or not you shared the same culture slash language as your API client, what was your experience in connecting with your client culturally and linguistically? Uh, did your API client decide to come to PACS because he or she informed that, was informed that there was a therapist staff who speaks his or her language? What outreach slash engagement techniques did you use to engage your API clients who did not really believe in mental health, illness and treatment? So, um, I listed out the survey responses in the next couple slides, kind of like this. I know it's a little small, so you guys could maybe like zoom in and see it later. So just to kind of like talk about uh, the responses that I got, these are just direct responses. Um, some of the recurring themes that I observed were, you know, again, number one, psychoeducation validation, non-judgmental and strength-based approach, uh, mutual cultural background, um, speaking the same language, perspective, and, um, and then also like mutual respect, acknowledgement of stigma, uh, using empathy, teamwork among therapist, parent, and child, and rapport building. So among these seven responses that I received, so I put like therapist number one and two, three and four. Yeah, so all of these um, therapists at our agency kind of had a recurring theme to how they approach their API clients. And then um, uh, one of them was Japanese, one of them was Korean, a um, couple of them were Cambodian speaking clients. And um, I think that was, and one of them was, did I say Korean? Yes, Korean and Japanese. Next slide. So now we're gonna have a little group discussion. Um, 
what are some different psychoeducation techniques that you use to engage your API clients at your agency? And if you don't, guys, if you guys don't have um, any API clients, you guys could kind of just like talk about your general approach to psychoeducation techniques. Um, any responses? You guys could put on the chat or you guys could unmute yourself and share with us. Hi, from the chat. Um... We have therapeutic recreation, food, mm -hmm. sharing past successful treatment cases as ways mm -hmm. to engage, sharing parts of culture that you really value, psychoeducation given in a group format or classes in the senior center seem to be very effective in the AAPI community. Thank you for that. And I agree. Uh, one of our therapists who's uh, Korean, he actually said that, you know, he used um, I guess like previous, um, you know, client stories in a, you know, confidential way, non-disclosing, not disclosing identifying information, of course, but kind of like talking about success stories and what, you know, his previous Korean clients have gone through in the past and how they have gotten better through therapy. So some of his clients actually started, you know, thinking, hey, like therapy maybe is working and maybe, maybe I'll give it a try. Yeah. Thanks for that in the chat. Yeah, I work with a lot of um, Japanese clients and they are very, you know, I guess closed off in the beginning. And a lot of the times they don't like to acknowledge the problem. They don't like to. And also, I, you know, like mentioned earlier for my Calrus client, she felt uncomfortable sharing about her life struggles to another Japanese female. And um, at one point, I think she requested a non-Japanese speaking therapist, even though there was a little bit of um, language barrier. So um, she rather, you know, want, wanted to speak to, you know, someone that she will, she'll have, you know, I guess problem or, you know, call, you know, I guess challenges this communicating than to discuss her problems to a Japanese person. And I think that comes from a lot of, um, I guess, like judgments and am I being judged? You know, she's also Japanese. Uh, we have, you know, a certain cultural standards. What if she doesn't see me like a normal Japanese person? So, all, you know, all this fear comes out and then it really hinders, you know, therapeutic relationships. So that's why, you know, I mentioned self-disclosure was one of the techniques that I used to engage the client and she was much more open after that. Um, question, do these techniques differ depending on age groups or specific API ethnic groups? So I know um, we had a response regarding, you know, Filipino clients, any other, any, anyone else wanna share their own culture and, you know, I guess, is it different from, you know, what I shared in the Japanese culture or the Filipino culture? Someone shared in chat um, said, letting my Filipino clients know that some of the coping skills traditionally taught in groups may not work for them and that's okay. And having that open discussion of what are the things that they do, that they do can be utilized as a coping skill, like praying the rosary as a form of meditating. Let me share a video with you guys. Um, so this one's in Japanese. So um, I think uh, uh, training facilitators, um, they sent you guys the, I guess like PDF version of um, my direct translation. So if you guys could follow along. North Queensland, FNQ. 今回は心の健康 
メンタルヘルスの大切さについてお話ししたいと思います心の健康は体の健康と同じように普段から気にかけてケアをすることが大切ですよね学校や職場人間関係金銭面や健康面など日常ではさまざまなストレスの要素が存在しています海外にいるご家族や友人を心配して寂しい思いをしている方もたくさんいらっしゃると思いますストレスが継続的に続くと気がつかないうちに心身に悪影響を及ぼすということが分かっています不安心配絶望ややりきれない気持ちなどが続き日常生活に支障をきたしていると感じたらかかりつけの GP に相談したりサポートセンターに相談することができます皆さんはレジリエンスという言葉を聞いたことがあるでしょうかメンタルヘルスにおいてレジリエンスというのは嫌なことがあってストレスを感じた時や逆境に立たされた時に悲しくなったり落ち込んだりしますよねその悲しみや落ち込みから立ち直る気持ちの回復力とか心の弾力性で困難な状況を適応するという能力をレジリエンスと言います心の健康のために自分なりにストレスにうまく対応していくこのレジリエンスの役割がとても重要だと言われています日本語でのメンタルヘルス情報が載っているウェブサイトがありますのでこちらからご確認ください通訳が必要な方はまず TIS 通訳サービスに電話をかけてからサービス機関におつなぎくださいセンタケア FNQ は心の健康に関する知識をできるだけたくさんの人に理解していただくためにビデオメッセージを送っています参考になったと思われた方はぜひサブスクライブボタンから登録をお願いいたしますご清聴ありがとうございました So,、um, this was an outreach video from a Japanese mental health provider. And I believe,、um, if I remember correctly from the YouTube link, it's from like Australia or something. So, it's in a completely different country.、Um, I wanted to kind of like talk about the video,、um, her, I guess, like tone of voice. And even like at the end, she kind of like, you know, did the, you know, the traditional Japanese bow, like, you know, as in like kind of like a sign of respect.、Um, I want to point out that when Kumi, her name is Kumi, when she talks about the importance of mental health,、um, she actually states it like a question by asking, Don't you think it's important to take good care of your mental health as you would with your physical health? So, you know, Japanese people tend to shy away from making a bold statement or, you know,、uh, yeah, just making a bold statement in general because it comes off as pushy and even aggressive sometimes. So, The way Kumi outreaches to the Japanese community is more gentle and a little bit passive.、Um, Kumi also correlates mental health issues with stressors related to school, work, finance, and social relationships, which are all common stressors in Japan. A lot of Japanese people in Japan are, you know, just they're 
really overwhelmed with um, overworking, you know, working over time. They go to like kids go to like three different schools sometime, like aside from their regular school, they'll go to like cram school to do better. And then every school has like an entrance exam. So in order to get into a prestigious like kindergarten or elementary school, middle school, high school, college, they all have to take an entrance exam to basically pass and get admitted to that school. So it's not like here when, you know, you just put your application in and then, you know, maybe community service or maybe a good personal statement could get you into the college. But over there, it's all exam-based. So a lot of kids are very stressed out. There's high suicide rate. There's a lot of depression among kids and adolescents, you know, from a very early stage of their childhood. So you know, Kumi actually points to that. And then another thing to notice that is that she strongly encourages to reach out to a primary care physician for help or, you know, a support center. So again, you know, the whole primary care physician was a recurring theme of um, how to get help and how to ask for help. Um, so lastly, she psychoeducates the audience by teaching what resilience means. So she starts out the... I guess question with, you know, have you guys ever heard of a term called resilience? And then she kind of gets into their definition and, you know, um, really makes it sound like resilience is a skill that's really needed in our life. And, you know, in order to cope with, this, you know, stressors, in order to cope with any mental health concerns. So she really takes the time to psychoeducate that to the audience. So I thought that was really nice. And just the whole tone of her voice, very calm, very peaceful. Um, and then the whole, you know, the traditional bow at the end. I thought that was a really good video. Okay, and then, so now we're going into outreach and engagement. So these are some of the effective approaches for outreach and engagement. So emphasis of academic improvement. So emphasizing and psychoeducating parents about their child's functional impairment of dropping grades for their kids in order to obtain consent for treatment. So, you know, school counselors or teacher could go to the parents and say, hey, you know, your kids were getting straight A's, but all of a sudden they're getting C's, you know, it just happened out of nowhere. Maybe we should explore this. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe she's feeling sad. And then parents really care about, you know, their kids' grades. So, you know, just kind of like, you know, encouraging the parents that improving their kids' mental health symptoms can lead to improving their kids' academic performance might actually motivate and encourage the parents to say yes to therapy for their kids. Uh, family. So AAPI clients often need family agreement on treatment recommendations. Um, so families can also help provide an accurate assessment of clients' symptoms and assist with clients' care at home and medication adherence. So in FSB, we do have some AAPI clients where, you know, they're Parents are constantly monitoring their medication and, you know, um, they would call the treatment team kind of updating us on, you know, what happened over the weekend. We had an episode, uh, you know, my son did this and that, you know, he acted out again. So they have a very accurate description of what the client is actually going through. So getting family involved is very important. Uh, mind and body. This is a holistic approach leading to dual focus on the experience of physical and emotional symptoms of distress. So teaching them correlations between taking care of mental health and physical health. So some of the examples might be yoga, meditations, tai chi, um, 
faith-based and spiritual. So church or faith-based groups providing psychoeducation on importance of mental health care and well-being using blessing ceremonies like our ink program or spiritual healing as part of treatment to engage your AAPI clients. Um, and lastly, strength-based, uh, recognizing and focusing more on their strengths rather than fixating on what's wrong with them. So that's, um, that's something that Kumi did in her video. So more on outreach and engagement. So universal screenings uh, used in a school setting mostly to screen for mental health issues due to API students' tendency to stay silent. So if there's a screening that is administered on campus to every student, more students would come forward about their mental health concerns um, because you know if, if it was up to them, they would never walk into the counseling center or you know the guidance center. Uh, culturally and linguistically diverse staff. So mental health agency hiring more professionals with the AAPI cultural background and language capacities can help and reach out to more diverse AAPI populations. Uh, members of target community. So building relationship with API community leaders such as church pastors or city council members in a target service area to seek assistance in the outreach process would lead to increasing clients engagement and services. So if this uh, member or leader is a respected person in their community, um, involving that person in the outreach process would actually motivate the client to say, hey, like, you know, my community leader is actually encouraging therapy. Maybe I should give it a try. Uh, Home-based outreach, rather than waiting on our clients to walk into our therapy office to seek services, we need to make the efforts to provide home and field-based outreach. So I know some of you guys are from FSP, so you guys are really well familiar with that, you know, doing field-based outreach, you know, going to our homeless populations and doing outreach on the streets, you know, by the tent encampments and stuff like that. Um, case management services. So before jumping right into mental health treatment, taking care of their basic needs first by offering case management services, that actually really helps you know, them engage in services. So some of our API clients, they're, they're like, I don't have a problem, I just need a job. You know, So our case managers would link them to job resources, help them with their resume, or some of them are homeless. So that's you know basically not meeting their basic needs. So finding them housing first, um, taking care of that first, and then tackling the mental health portion next in treatment. And I think that would you know really assist with the rapport building too. So we're gonna do another case study. This actually, this client is actually, um, I kind of changed up a little bit of the information, but you know, she was my former client. Um, the name is of course different and I, I put a different age too. So. Um, if I could have maybe three volunteers to read uh, each of the paragraphs, that'd be awesome. Um, Sakiko is a 16-year-old Japanese female who was born in the United States. Sakiko, her younger brother Kotaro, and her parents moved back to Japan when Sakiko was two years old. At age four, the father sent all three back to the United States, and he remained in Japan to continue working at his company. The parents often fought in front of the kids from an early age, and they were having marital issues. Should I keep going? Um, sure, if no one okay. wants to. Yeah. When you. Sakiko was around 9 to 10 years old, her mother would drink wine and verbally lash out at the kids, especially on Sakiko. Her mother would often say things like, it was your fault that we had to move back here and couldn't stay in Japan. 
Sakiko developed a severe eating disorder by age 13, which has worsened over time. And at age 16, due to her at-risk, low body weight, suicidal ideation, and self-harming behaviors, she was referred to PAX FSP by her pediatrician. A Japanese FSP therapist visited the client and her mother for their first outreach session. Sakiko appeared very angry and stated in English, I hate my mom. This is all her fault. Her mother just looked down, guarded and reluctant to share anything about their family history and stated, my daughter is doing well in school and I buy her everything that she needs at home. I am not sure why she needs therapy. Thank you for volunteering to read. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is like a little bit of a synopsis of like what my client looked like and she actually did have an eating disorder. Um, so, so reflective questions. Um, what are some of the traumas that Sakiko experienced at an early age? Um, well, moving, uh, moving is pretty traumatic. And then on top of that, a lot of blame from her mother and the verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Not really having her father around. And like seeing their parents fight all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the internalized behaviors that Sakiko is presenting with? Could it be because she, she wasn't loved? Mm-hmm. She probably internalized a lot of the, the blame that her mother put on her. So she feels a lot of guilt herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, speaking from my clients, you know, I guess experiences, um, she really felt like she was out of control because she could not control, you know, the parents, she could not control the circumstances. So when she felt really out of control, that's when her eating disorder started. So that was, um, that was something, it was kind of like an internalized behavior that came out outward. Um, so the next question is like, what is her eating disorder telling us? Um, again, that was more of her saying that like, you know, by controlling what I eat and by controlling my weight, um, I have full control of, you know, this, you know, whatever I'm doing now, but then, you know, she couldn't control her past. She couldn't control her parents' relationships and the fights and the abuse. So that was one way that she was able to control something. Uh, Why do you think her mother is guarded and does not believe that Sakiko needs therapy? It's interesting. Um, her family was, you know, pretty well off. So she did get the things that she wanted. She got her iPhone, she got her MacBook, you know, she got the things that she needed, but you know, she never really had that emotional support from both parents. So I think that's when the explosion happened when she was on a teenage level. So yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and mother um actually did not, you know, have any therapy, you know, in, in the past when she should have, you know, and I think she was also kind of internalizing her own stuff too. And then that kind of exploded and she lashed out on her kids. Um, so next question, how would the therapist engage both Sakiko and mother in treatment? So if you were the therapist, how would you engage Sakiko and her mom in therapy or in any kind of modality of treatment? Anything in the chat, Christina? Sorry, I can't see my chat right now. <laughs> no worries. Um, for this question, we have a response separately at first and then move to group sessions. Mm. Thank you. 
Anyone else want to unmute and share? So if this was your client, what would you do as your first approach? So I do want to share, um, you know, I guess, you know, the the response in the chat box, you know, do individual first and then move to group. Um, that's actually exactly what I did because um, I really wanted to engage her in family therapy session, you know, probably from the beginning and throughout the middle of the treatment. But my client actually always said, I don't want family therapy. She wouldn't understand. Like, what's there to discuss? There's no point. And then family therapy never actually happened. She was in my FSB program for about two and a half years. And then um, finally, when she was actually getting better, like ready to go to college, her eating disorder symptoms decreased by a lot, you know, and then I think she was able to regain control of her life again. I think that's when um, she actually said yes to having a family therapy for the first time. And that was our second to our last session at our house. So we had a family session. It actually was like two and a half hours I was there. And then since mom didn't get off work until like a certain time, I actually went there at like 6 p.m. and I left home at like 8.30 p.m. So that was a tough night for me <laughs> as an FSB therapist back then. But um, so yeah, so the family therapy was beautiful. Um, they both cried. They both basically kind of like understood each other's point. And then I think when mom talked about when mom was finally vulnerable enough to admit, like, these were some of the issues that I went through with your father. These are some of the issues that I went through coming to this country. And then she really like became vulnerable and shared about all her, all of her experiences. I think that opened up my client's eyes and really like, it made her think like, wow, my mom's only human too. You know, she, she was stressed out. She was depressed. She was angry. And then um, she started kind of, and then, you know, mind you, throughout her whole, throughout all the whole treatment, she didn't have any kind of anger towards her dad because dad was always away. And then he would send, you know, he would send them gifts and like, you know, he would come visit like maybe like two to three times a year and then like take them out to nice places. And, you know, he wasn't the bad guy in this family. So, you know, I think um, a lot of the, the lashing out and a lot of the anger actually was directed towards her mother. So when they finally understood that, she apologized to her mom saying, hey, I'm so sorry that I blamed you for everything. I, I didn't know the whole story. And it was a beautiful family session. And yeah, and after that, like they started getting along a little better. And then I have my termination session with her. She went off to college. She got into one of the UCs and she's, she's doing well. And then we graduated her from FSP. So that was really cool. Um, the last question, what type of psychoeducation do you recommend for Sakiko and her mother? Feel free to type in the chat box or unmute yourself. Um, I know a lot of the psychoeducation stuff were covered earlier, but if you guys have any, any new ideas, just for this particular client. I'm not sure if this was an answer to this question, but someone put in the chat parenting education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, our psychiatrist actually did a an hour-long psychoeducation for the mom on like what is an eating disorder? Like, how does it happen? Why does it happen? And mom had no idea about this. And she was just like, wow, like, 
and she actually started crying in the psychiatrist session, you know, so it was, it was very powerful. So psychoeducation sometimes could mean, you know, a lot for these clients and their parents, because, you know, they don't have any idea what it's like to have an eating disorder. What is it, this eating disorder? Like, why do people, you know, like binge and purge, you know, it's, it was, it was an eye opener for the mom, definitely. Uh, and the interesting part was like this psychiatrist wasn't even Japanese and mom had a little bit of difficulty understanding. She knew the basics, but when I explained it, it wasn't as effective as when the psychiatrist did. And she did such an amazing job um, just breaking it down and really like building a rapport in the beginning and throughout. And mom was kind of sort of guarded towards me in the beginning but um, for that that session that she had with her psychiatrist, that was maybe like maybe like a month or two months into our treatment. And for the first time, the mom cried in front of me and the psychiatrist. I was sitting in there as a translator, but I actually didn't even have to jump in most of the time because my psychiatrist, you know, did a, a phenomenal job at explaining everything and breaking things down. And the mom actually cried. And I was just like, wow, this is this is crazy. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I speak the language. <laughs> So yeah, thank you guys all for your responses. Any other, you know, thoughts before I move on to the next slide? Yeah, and I love that white coat effect, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I've never heard of that term, so that's awesome. There's some additional um, notes in the chat. Um, okay. Someone says, yes, I think getting other health professionals to share their concerns with the parent Sometimes therapists are not seen as believable enough and a doctor's opinion needs to be brought in. Mm. Yeah. And teachers and like professors are also like credible too in terms of um, talking, you know, relating again, like, you know, earlier when I mentioned like academic, you know, performance it correlated to mental health symptoms and the drop in grades and stuff like that. So I think it's all, you know, we, we need to always include other people in our treatment. This is my lengthy reference page. I read a lot. <laughs> I felt like I was back in grad school. And then finally, um, our, I'm actually from Pacific Asian Counseling Services. Um, this is our LAX uh, office number, Long Beach and Van Nuys. We have three locations. So we service service area five, two and eight. Um, so uh, at PAX, you know, we have fundings for our FST API FSB contracts. So aside from the regular FSB child and adult clients that we get, we have a separate, you know, special funding just for the API FSB child uh, clients in service area five, adults in five, and then child and adult in eight, but we have none at two. So uh, so yeah, that's our contract. And then our staff conducts community and home-based outreach. You know, they go to their homes, they go, to, they talk to their parents, they talk to the family members, and we offer a multidisciplinary team approach in our mental health treatment. So which consists of therapists, case managers, peer advocate, and psychiatrists. And then um, the more and more we get into our treatment, we include teachers, we include, you know, the doctors, like we talked about. So that was really nice. Um, and then we have API staff who speak Korean, Japanese, Khmer, which is, you know, Cambodian, Samoan, Vietnamese, and two different dialects of Chinese. Uh, so we do 
we would like to get more, but um, you know, it is it is hard to recruit AAPI staff. Um, and then we do have several AAPI uh, collaborative agencies spread out in different service areas. So we're one of them. Uh, we strongly believe in partnership and working with the AAPI communities and families. So you know, hence the word FSB, full service partnership, you know, that actually derived from, you know, partnering with, you know, everyone in the community, like everyone in the treatment team, everyone in the family, you know, any anyone that's related or is an important part of the client's life, we partner with them and our treatment to, you know, better improve their goals and mental health symptoms. So that concludes the end of my presentation. So and then I um, just wanted to let you guys know that my colleagues are actually, you know, doing another training. This is part of the whole AAPI training series. So the next one is um, the, the INC program that I talked to you guys about. She's a program manager, at, you know, for that program. Her name is Aria, and she'll be doing the AAPI phases of treatment on um, specific interventions. And then um, my other colleague in FSP, um, she leads the FSP program with me. She's actually doing an AAPI portion of crisis intervention. So uh, that'll be coming up in the next you know, couple months. All right, guys. Uh, thank you guys so much for your time. And you guys have a great uh, you know, weekend, holidays. Uh, I'm sure you guys are all excited for the Christmas and New Year's coming up. <laughs> thank you.